Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Scotty Rogers, the Director of Communications for the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic. Scotty is no stranger to major events, having volunteered at 21 Cotton Bowls and spending five years with the NCAA working on the Women's Basketball Tournament. It was a massive learning experience, and honestly, it helped me um, understand how to handle a major sporting event on a national level with, with a thousand moving parts and understand how your part fits within it. Most of Scotty's career has been spent working in communications for college conferences, including most recently with the Sun Belt after spending time with the Ivy League. Unfortunately, when you're at leagues like the Sun Belt and the Ivy League, when your coaches are successful, you know, what ends up happening is you get, you get, uh, you get plucked away by the Power Five conferences. And when you're in those leagues, you have to look at that as a sign of success. After going to school at the University of Alabama, Scotty got his professional start in the Crimson Tide's own conference, the SEC, which is an experience unlike any other. You know, I don't want people to get overly sensitive for using the word religion when you think about sports and particularly football in the Southeast, but it really is that. It is, a, it is an intersection of passion, community, um, bragging rights. During Scotty's two decades in athletic communications, he has had a front row seat as the industry has changed. You're almost in crisis communications mode all the time. You know, there was a time where you could kind of massage that story. You could kind of put it out there. You could kind of work with that beat writer that you've known for a long time and put that story out there in, in a certain way. Now, you got to put that message out there. And you got to be transparent with your messaging. you got to be transparent with your processes. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discuss in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the Director of Communications for the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic, Scotty Roger, on Credentials Only. Scotty, thanks so much for joining me. And I'm really looking forward uh, to talking about so much of your career. You've got a ton of great experience. But I want to start with your time at the NCAA. And I'm a guy, I love March Madness, and I love all that comes with March Madness. But there's a little bit of March Madness that I really enjoy, and I, I, it's a unique part. I love the journalists on Twitter going on and on about the policy for taking a beverage courtside. What is this NCAA rule? <laughs> you know, that is a great question. You know, that, that, the beverage course, I, and it has evolved a little bit, I will say. It has evolved. You know, obviously it was a corporate sponsor thing where you wanted to be able to make sure that on the sidelines, whether that was in the media areas or the, where they were sitting or the uh, team tables, I mean the uh, bench areas or the, or the scores table, you know, you wanted to have that branded cup. It was the signing co-branded cup with the NCAA logo. So that was really the biggest thing about that because you didn't want to, with, with, with the cameras on, millions watching in this country and around the world, um, you wanted to not see a competing company um, out there. So, you know, it was it was to the point where at a lot of places, as you remember seeing, you'd have the uh, the table with the uh, with the sleeve of cups right at the right at the entry points to the to the court. And, and many times there would be someone there um, stopping people. And I know over time they've made some adjustments, like some logical adjustments, like for the radio 
um, networks and for the score, for the scores table, maybe allowing them to have water bottles with that same logo on it instead of cups because obviously you have electronic equipment all around and one wrong move and water in electronics, not a good idea at a basketball game. Because I've been at basketball games where things caught on fire and there was smoke. So you don't want to see that. <laughs> you don't want to see that at any point. Um, so just little things like that. But, you know, I, you know, the NCAA, as you well know, branding was extremely important during that three-week period. Um, so, and it was uh, an attempt also to try to make sure that when you looked at from site to site, uh, whether that's first, second rounds, regionals, final four, what you saw courtside as far as the look and feel looked the same or as close to the same as possible. Understanding that you're in, for the men, you're in eight different arenas for the for that first weekend for the women, um, 16. Um, so you want to create that uh, consistent branding look. And that's what that's what the kind of the baseline or where it was all about. And I think that cup example is a pretty extreme example, but that does stand out to the viewer at home watching. You don't know if you're, you know, if you look closely, you'll figure out, okay, this is Boise or this is Jacksonville, but that experience is going to be the same for the viewer at home. But that's also important for the teams involved. What were some of the lengths that the NCA goes to, to make sure that it's that uniform experience for all the teams competing? Well, I have a, I have a funny story to tell you about that. Um, it was the 99 first and second rounds in Orlando Indiana was there, and I was serving in the role of uh, interview room coordinator. So my job was to work with the interview, with the moderator, to kind of make sure that the dance was set as teams were coming in, whether it was the practice day or it was the, uh, or it was, you know, game day and post game. Well, there was a post game, and it was a long hallway walking down, and Bobby Knight was coming down the hallway, and he had, he had a drink and a cup. That was not the approved cup. So for probably about what felt like 30 steps, he's coming toward me and I'm standing there. There's really no one in between us. And I'm thinking, how am I going to stop Bobby Knight from getting on that stage? With that? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm standing there and I'm young in the business at this, you know, in, at this point. Um, and the, uh, the uh, media relations contact right when he got there, just stepped in right before he got on stage, grabbed the cup out of his hand, poured it in the NCAA cup, and he went on the stage. It was like it was like I was there ready ready for the play, and it just went past me. And I was like, it's, it's like he almost did a crossover on me, and I was just stuck in my stuck with with concrete concrete feet. So it was, uh, you know, those things happen, and and that's what you have to do. And you know, it's I understood it. Before I got worked at the NCAA, and I I uh, understood it while I worked there, and, and to this day, you know, I'll go for all these years. I've gone and worked uh, any of the weekends, and especially Final Fours. It's the same thing that that has stuck with me, and I still see it and think about it. And if I walk by courtside during a Final Four, and somebody's got a cup that's not the NCAA cup, I'll say, Hey, can you put it? Hey, put this cup around it, or um, hey, just put it down under the table or something because I don't want anybody to come bother me. So. And even those interviews, you know, that's all prescribed. I mean, there is a playbook that doesn't matter what venue you're at, you're going to follow. The losing team has X number of minutes in the locker room. The winning team has X number of minutes in the locker room before they have to open the locker room. It's open for this amount of time. Mm -hmm. it, putting in that much thought into every last detail 
it strikes me as something that helps make the NCAA tournament as successful as it is, but you've been on the inside executing that. What do you think the benefits are of having that level of detail? I think with that level of detail, I think all of it is meant to create a championship experience. So when, so when these student athletes, coaches, administrators walk into the arena for their open practice, they may have played there in the regular season. They may have played that team. But when they walk in there for the NCAA championship, it's a different environment. It is a, you're playing for the national championship. You're playing for something bigger than what you were the last time you were in that arena. And it was a regular season or even a conference tournament game. So I think it's it, that's why it's important. You know, you see all the, as you remember, because you, you see all the blue pipe and drape and blue carpet everywhere. You know, and, and it would cover up some areas and obviously the hallways and things like that. And all the signage, you know, inside the arena, outside the arena, uh, you know, in the team hotels. It was just really important to make sure that when when those student athletes, coaches, administrators came to that city and came to that facility, they know they were experiencing something different and um, something that may, they may done for the first time. And they may never get back in their four-year career for the student-athletes or the entirety of their career as a coach or an administrator. But they're going to have that memorable experience and they can think about being with their, with, their, with their co-workers or their teammates and talk about, hey, you remember that time in, in, in 2000 when we played in that game and such and such happened? And when they have those reunions and they can tell those stories. And I think that's, I think that's important. I, I really got to see that. Pete, when I was working with the NCAA, with the, when we got to the Final Four um, for the women, I, I did five women's Final Fours on staff. And, you know, that was a place where it just, the, the, that level of specialness just ratcheted up to that next level. Because you're, you're truly playing for the national championship. It's down to four teams. And it was, uh, you know, it, it got emotional uh, a lot of times when you stand there for the national anthem and all the work that we've done at that point, we're 24 months in working with that city to get to that moment um, of the national championship. So when you get to that, that moment and the national anthem is being played and it's that last night um, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the tournament, you're just standing, your tears are kind of welling up in your eyes, you're looking around. I, I'm looking down at a full media table. I'm looking down at, the, at everything on both sides of the court. The, the scores table is full. Everybody's, everybody's ready to go. You know, the, the excitement is at a level. And, uh, you know, I, I get I got chills right now just, just talking about it. And I think the day that those chills go away is the day that I probably shouldn't work in sports. What was your role with the NCAA? In that role, I was uh, I primarily oversaw the media operations for the championship. So my job was to at the at the preliminary rounds level, which is the first and second rounds and the regionals was to work with the hosts and make sure that all those things, those nuances that you were just talking about, as far as the media operations concerned, making sure that we directed them in the right way to manage that and in a consistent way across those sites. You know, for the women, uh, for most of the time I was there, we had 16 first and second round sites and four regional sites. So that's 20 sites that you're trying to get somewhat on the same page. And, and you're coming at it completely differently because for the men's tournament, those first and second round sites are declared years in advance. Right. For the women, it was merit-based. If you were a top four seed, you were going to get to host. And some of them, uh, a UConn, a Tennessee in that era, you kind of could pencil in. But for other schools, I'll raise my hand, Xavier, yes. <laughs> you know, we yeah. snuck in as a four seed and all of a sudden we're hosting NCAA tournament games. And for you, 
you get selection Sunday night to then Thursday to get a school up to speed with hosting a tournament that, that on the school side was a unique challenge. I'm sure for you on the NCA side had to be rewarding, but also incredibly challenging that week. It was very challenging because you had people with, like you said, you had schools that had hosted many times. So, you know, when you're talking to them, it was more talked about what are the differences because they know the basics. You know, what's changed from year to year? Maybe they hadn't hosted in two years or three years. So you, for me, you didn't want to waste too much time on the basics because you had to assume that they knew it because they were. But then a school like Xavier, like you like you mentioned, when when you guys hosted and you were forcing and you snuck in and it's all come in. Yeah, you might have done some prep work a little bit because you thought it might be an opportunity. But now it's a reality. So now you got to you got to learn and you're dealing with, you know, when you're dealing with women's basketball versus men, a lot of times, maybe you didn't have as many people working on it. So someone in the communications role may have to help more so with, with being the host media coordinator and be the media relations contact for their team. So some people had to do it in an exclusive dual role. Some people had some help over the years and you learned who who are in what different situations and then what they did. And then for me, really when it came to the final four, that's, that's when I was in control of the entire media operations. You know, everything from, from soup to nuts, working collaboratively with ESPN, working with uh, partners like um, our folks at Hammond Communications that did all the satellite linking for the press conferences and things like that. And there were some other duties that I did during the, during the year with the regional advisory committees and some other things like that. That was some administrative things. But at one point, I was overseeing the media operations. I was doing hotels, meaning the contracts at the headquarters and the team hotels. And I was also doing transportation. So the shuttle system um, with all the buses and then also the courtesy car system that we had for, you know, for teams and for our committee members and things like that. So, you know, it was it was a lot going on there in the early early 2000s when I was there. But it was a lot of fun. It was a massive learning experience. And honestly, it helped me. Um, understand how to handle a major sporting event on a national level with, with a thousand moving parts and understand how your part fits within it and then how you need to make your parts fit within it. So it was important for me uh, in that in my evolution and uh, I learned a lot and I rely on that knowledge all the time. And in a very broad sense, what are the numbers like of people helping you just specific to that media component at a final four? You know, at the, it's, it's probably at the women's, it was probably, it was definitely probably virgin on 50, 60 people in some form or fashion. And at men's is probably, you know, close to a hundred. When you think about the, the LLC, the local organizing committee, the host media coordinator, um, he or she has their group of media volunteers. The NCAA staff brings in some members of their staff. They bring in, a media coordination committee that are um, people that come in on an annual basis and they serve in some of the leadership roles um, around the media operations. And we had that um, on the women's side as well. Um, it, it's a lot of people. It's a lot, you know, you have a person that is, uh, that is part of the local organizing committee and their sole job is just to manage the volunteer base uh, for all the various things that's going on. And that's in, you talking about in the two to three thousands of people when you talk about all the different events from the things related to the to the games to um, the coaches associations conventions that are going on 
to the community events that are going on, uh, to some of the social events that are going on that, that is officially a part of the of the NCA schedule. You add all of that stuff in and it's it it, it takes more than the village. It takes a it takes a city and sometimes it takes a couple, three cities to help boost the final four if you're gonna do it right and and some of the major cities, as you know, especially on the men's side, the men have a pretty limited number because they have to they're going to the domes as they have been for, for decades. So it's really a limit, limited number of cities that can host it. Um, last year, well, not this past year, but 2019 was in Minneapolis and new facility for them, great facility there. You know, they had some great things there. They also had some challenges because, you know, Minneapolis is a little colder. Um, so you have to deal with that. But they also have the, the, the interlocking system um, in the downtown area. So that created, you could get a lot of places and you didn't have to go outside. So it's, every city uh, creates uh, a lot of positives and some challenges and you have to work through them. You've spent the majority of your professional career in media relations roles with athletic conferences. And that's a little bit different than working for a school or obviously working for the NCAA. But the three conferences you've spent time with are pretty unique as well. And your most recent was the Sunbelt Conference. And you're deep in the heart of SEC country there. It must be a different experience being at someone like the Sun Belt compared to being in a Power Five conference. How did it compare? You know, it was it was a good experience for me because, as you know, yeah, I worked at three. I worked at the SEC and, and my first job out of college and ended up getting my first full-time job. And then I had the uh, unique experience of spending eight years at the Ivy League, which is a very different experience and, and at the F- FCS level. Uh, on, on the football side, you know, at the Sun Belt, you know, because I'm born and raised in Alabama, I grew up there. I went to school there. Coming into the Sun Belt, there was a lot of familiarity for me as far as just the the, the landscape of what we were dealing with there, as it related to being in the same footprint um, as the SEC and in some cases uh, the Big Twelve. So that wasn't really daunting for me because I was able to. Um, use some of the contacts that I had. Some of them were still at some of the places they were when I was way back at the SEC 15-ish years ago prior. So, you know, being able to reconnect with some people, being able to connect with new people, you know, knowing a little bit about the schools as well. You know, I didn't know everything about the Sun Belt in general, but because when I grew up in in the South, I remember the Sun Belt as a basketball country. You know, when they, back in the uh, founded in the 70s, but in the 80s into the early 90s, the Sun Belt was a was a multi-team league basketball conference that was, you know, winning. I, you know, one of the games that I don't like to remember, but I remember it because uh, South Alabama beat Alabama in the first round of the NCAA tournament with peanut butter and jelly, and that you know those were two guys. And you know, my hometown is uh, is about about 50 miles, a little over 50 miles north of Mobile, so. I grew up reading the Mobile Press Register. My dad did, so that means I did. And, you know, I followed them over the years and their successes and, and, and trials and tribulations. And then, obviously, with them coming up um, into the uh, into the uh, FBS world, as, as, as with Troy. So, um, I, you know, it was it was definitely a unique experience. You know, I felt like I had a, I had a little bit more because the you know, just under a year and a half prior to going to the Sun Belt, I was already in New Orleans. I was at, I worked at Tulane, which is also in the group of five. So I kind of had my uh, group of five hat on before I walked into the Sun Belt conference office. So my previous conference experience helped me 
Um, the most recent experience I'd had at, two, at Tulane with the group of five perspective helped me. So I, I walked in and I felt like I had a good handle on, on, on that perspective. And, you know, when I first got there, primarily I was I worked with a lot of different sports. But the primary sport I was working with was basketball. And I did the entire men's basketball and I did the entire time I was there. Um, it was only in the last year that I really dealt more with football more directly. And while in the national landscape, the Sun Belt might not have the notoriety of some of the Power Five conferences, it is, to your point, big deal in Mobile or Troy or Statesboro, Georgia or Monroe, Louisiana. And I have to think that that makes your job pretty easy because you know you're going to have a, a very loyal media base in a lot of these places, even though you are deep in the heart of SEC country. Well, you know, I think the, the attention to the group of five and then trying to, it's been growing over time. You know, you got entities like The Athletic who has a person who covers the group of five, you know, so in Christiani. So you, you look at those types of things and then, you know, using this last football season, the 2019 season, as a perfect example, we had a, you know, we had a water, we had a, we had a landmark season in the conference. You know, with four wins over over uh, Power Five conference schools, you know Appalachian State getting ranked um, in the in the FCS uh, rankings. You know the the championship game, just the second championship game in the conference's history. You know, and the first game that involved two teams um, from the, from the conference with with ten wins, ten or more wins. You know, you know from from what App State did, obviously with the Georgia State's huge win. Um, with, with, with Coastal's win, um, obviously App State had two wins, but Louisiana, what they're doing in, in Lafayette, um, the Raging Cajuns, uh, you know, they they are, have put themselves as a part of the national conversation. Their draft proved it. They had three guys drafted. You know, the, the conference tied a record with, with seven guys, uh, seven guys drafted. So you look at the entirety of the 1920. Um, academic year for the Sun Belt as it relates to football, you know, that that was a lot of positive and there was a lot of other things that happened in there that was really that was really great as well. So but those those key things that happened, you know, is gonna put is putting the Sun Belt um and Sun Belt football in particular in a different conversation as we move into this next range because the Sun Belt is trying to show that it is right there with the American, right there with the Mountain West. Um, you know, a lot of people look at them as the top couple of conferences in the group of five. But the Sun Belt, you look at their record in the postseason uh, over the last handful of years, got a better record than, than, than all of those. You mentioned having worked in the Ivy League before that. That has to be a very unique landscape in college athletics. It's known for its academics, but sports are not necessarily an afterthought. It's still a big deal at Ivy League institutions, right? It's a, it's a huge deal at Ivy League institutions. You know, that experience taught me so much about um, the depth and breadth of, of collegiate sports. The Ivy League, um, as a conference, officially sponsors 33 sports. Harvard has 42 varsity sports. So, you know, when you start thinking about that number, you know, most schools at the, at the FBS level you know, probably floating around anywhere between 16 to the low 20s, you know, as, as number of sports. But when you start talking about that and then successes in those sports, you know, and the, and the one thing that I found, you know, the successes in sports that people, you know, may not pay as much attention to, like rowing or squash or lacrosse, 
are massive in that conference and, and, and to their fabric of the conference. But then you start looking at some of the successes the league was having, you know, with some of the teams, some of the individual players in football, uh, teams in basketball and the NCAA tournament. You know, you had a three-year, you had a three-year stretch where, you know, Harvard won back-to-back games in the NCAA tournament. Yale won a game in the NCAA tournament. You know, you had success on the women's basketball side. You had Princeton that was just up there. I really high, had a successful year. Um, coaches, you know, unfortunately, when you're at leagues like the Sun Belt and the Ivy League, when your coaches are successful, you know, what ends up happening is you get you get uh, you get plucked away by the Power Five conferences. But that's that's a, and when you're in those leagues, you have to look at that as a sign of success because that means your coach is being notarized for his or her accomplishment on the field, off the field, um, mentoring and leading the student athletes in their pursuits in the classroom, in the community. Uh, and I think, you know, the student athlete aspect of it was, was, uh, was really something that I, um, it, it really just taught me a lot. And with the Ivy League office being on Princeton's campus, you got to see a little bit of being, you got to see a lot of actually being on an Ivy League campus and what that means um, to those young people who are coming there. And, you know, I love my degree from Alabama and uh, I'm a roll tied it till, till, till the day I die. But, you know, you know, when people walk, when some of these people walk away from some of these uh, Ivy League campuses and then you see them coming back for some of the games, these are some of the leaders of the free world um, and in all walks of life. And, you know, you may have seen them as a 18-year-old student athlete, and 20 years later, they're they're leading a top, you know, company or something in the medical field or something in 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 politics. You know, whatever walk of life um, it, it may be. So it's it's a, it was an amazing experience to to be around that and and play a role in helping to promote the athletics. Of the Ivy League, because you know, I I was real at you know the academic side is something a lot of people know. But one of the things I wanted to make sure that people know, and they've done a lot of that um, while we did a lot of that while I was there, and even after I left, promoting that these students, pretty good athletes too. In what ways was it different to be working in a conference that has footprint in such major media markets, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, in particular? You know, it was it was really good because, you know, one of the things, I'll give you an example. You know, one of the things we tried to work on, I worked on a little bit, um, was approaching, like, Bloomberg News to cover Ivy League sports. Now, why would Bloomberg News want to cover Ivy League sports? Well, they have their trading machines um, and all the financial news that they're putting out there. Well, all those, many of those people that are working in those institutions or Ivy League grads. So why not also give them some news about what's going on in sports? Because look, you know, I know Alabama Auburn is big because of where I went, but Penn Princeton is big. Harvard Yale is big. So they wanna they want, you know, Princeton Yale is big. They wanna make sure that um, you know, when that's going on, they, they're talking the same smack talk to their their conference uh, comrades, and they're, you know, they're doing the same thing that a lot of people do across the conferences, you know. But I did find that, that, you know, there was a lot of collegiality in the league, too. You know, you got eight schools, eight eight 
eight like-minded schools pulling in the same direction, which frankly is why you're probably seeing some of the decisions that they made, you know, right at the start of during this pandemic and even as, uh, you know, here recently with some of the things that may happen in that league going forward in this upcoming academic year. I am from the North. I'm from Big Ten country. I now live in Florida. Y'all are crazy here in the SEC. <laughs> you went to school in the SEC. You worked in the SEC. Explain to someone who is not familiar this religion that you guys have around the SEC. You know, I don't want people to get overly sensitive for using the word religion when you think about sports and particularly football in the Southeast. But it really is that. It is a it is an intersection of passion, community, um, bragging rights. A lot of these cities, you got to think about a lot of these cities where some of the SEC schools are, they're not major NFL teams or major league baseball teams or hockey teams or basketball teams near them. Yes, they're fans of various teams, you know, and you got to think about, you know, when a lot of people were going up, you know, there wasn't an NFL team in Tennessee. There wasn't an NFL team in Charlotte. There wasn't a hockey team in in, in, in Nashville. So, you know, so the, some of that was not happening. So it was the college sports that really became the place where people fellowship. That's the place to be. That was the social thing to do on a Saturday. Yes, the game was big, but the tailgating, the hanging out with friends, the hanging out with family, you know, um, it is it is something else. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough in the last couple of years to be able to go a couple of games as fans. And, man, as a fan, and it's really reminded me how much I like sports because, you know, when you can go as a fan and just be out in the tailgate area and just see how people, you know, people take pride in their tailgates too. I mean, this, these things are ratcheted up to a whole level now. I mean, with the, with the satellite TV and the grills and I mean, they're just not cooking burgers and dogs, man. They are out there doing gourmet stuff, you know, and making specialty drinks. And they become little communities. You know, you like you have a community where your house is in your neighborhood. But you, when you travel to a lot of these games, especially the home games, your 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 RV or your your tailgate is right next to this family or group of people that over five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, you get to know them. They become a, a different family. Um, and people really enjoy that, and I think that's a lot of fun. And then, obviously, you want to go in and you see the great competition. You see the level of competition in that league, not just in football, across all the sports, but football, obviously, is the one that really brings that community together when you, when you think about that game day experience and Saturdays in the South. It, it has been 20 years since you worked with the SEC. Sorry for aging you there. Um, yeah. But so much has changed in collegiate sport, in that time in broadcasting, there's now an SEC network and so many sports are televised now. There's social media. But from your perspective, what do you think the biggest differences are now in a conference like the SEC today compared to when you were working there? You know, the biggest thing there is there, there's, there's, no, there's no privacy. Everything is out there. Everything is out there at a moment's notice from whether it's information that you're trying to put out there, you're trying to hold it because you're making a big decision. You know, student athletes, has they have the right through their own social media to put things out there. I mean, look what's happening in the world right now. Look what's happening with, the, with this uh, social justice initiative that is, that, is, that is powered by the Black Lives Matter movement 
on what student-athletes are doing right now. You know, 20 years ago, they didn't have those avenues, direct avenues to do that. There was avenues. You could still get it through to me, but you still had levels to, to work through. And in many cases, it may have been stopped or may have been squelched a little bit because it would have went through um, certain people in the administration. Now, anybody can get on their social media account and say what they want to say and, and, and ask for things and demand things. And I think that's something that's different out there now. But you also have the people in those leadership roles. They need to, they're bound by having to say something regardless of what happens, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the, the, the social unrest and racial unrest in the country, you have to put all that out there. You can't, you know, there was a time where you could, you could, you could kind of massage that story. You could kind of put it out there. You could kind of work with that beat writer that you've known for a long time and put that story out there in, in a certain way. Now you got to put that message out there and you got to be transparent with your messaging. You got to be transparent with your processes um, not that people wouldn't or not trying to be transparent. It was just harder to do so because of the way to get your information out there. So I think that's the biggest thing uh, is the transparency in the space, which is making the space better without question. Transparency about how things are being administered, how things are being governed, how things are being managed, how things are operating. I think that is that is a major positive in our, in our overall profession of intercollegiate athletics. But it creates a lot of challenges, too. As a PR person, what are those challenges that you then need to navigate, whether working for the brand, the organization, the coach, the player? How do you view those challenges? You're almost in crisis communications mode all the time. You really are. You know, whether it's something with, whether you're at the school level and that's some sort of situation with a student athlete or a head coach or an assistant coach or an administrator. Uh, obviously, you look at something like uh, this situation you know, um, with, with we have two major things going on in, in this country right now that are going parallel to each other um, that separately are, 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 are challenging in their own right. But together is, you know, it's, it's unprecedented, you know, with this pandemic. And, you know, now we're, you know, we were talking, you know, a little bit ago, you know, where the world is right now, you know, what our country is in particular, you know, Hopefully, you know, we're, we're starting to move back into a point that we can flatten this curve and get things going. But right now, we're not there. So trying to do, when I say in crisis mode all the time, I don't mean that you're trying to make crisis. I'm trying to, I'm meaning you have to be prepared to respond to something very quickly. You can't sit back and wait and wait a couple of days. You got to be able to, whatever it may come up, whether it's at school level, conference level, NCA level. You know, you have to be able to be able to um, talk about what you're going to do. And if you don't know, that needs to be your answer. If you don't know, I think one thing about this pandemic that I've learned is that don't I don't know is better than saying no comment. Because you're telling people the truth. You don't know. So I can't give you an answer. You're asking me a question that I cannot answer for the simple reason that I don't have the facts, I don't have the information, meaning I could be a school, a conference, or an, or an, a national association like the NSA. May not have the answers, but we're gonna find the experts, we're gonna find the people in our space, and we're gonna put them together, and we're gonna have a conversation and try to hope to start the framework of answers and the framework of a direction. 
And it, it almost feels like I don't know has to become more a piece of this because the conversation is so accelerated now with no one waiting for a newspaper deadline, no the social media age. Everybody wants to know everything immediately. You just cannot, especially in unprecedented times like we're in. Well, and as you know, with this, you know, this this Black Lives Matter movement, yes, it's a national thing, but it just like this pandemic in a similar but different way, it's affecting different communities differently. So different communities are having to manage it in different ways. Yes, it's a national movement. Yes, we have more of the of of corporate America and uh, and professional sports organizations getting behind it and putting money behind it and, and, and people who have the ability to do so putting money where their mouth is or putting action where they're where they're putting making more action instead of just um, you know pontificating about it. And I think all of that is great. But we got to figure out how to do that. You know, that's that's one of the biggest things. Just just talking about the pandemic alone, that's one of the biggest things that's affecting intercollegiate athletics right now. Because what happens in the state of Alabama is going to be different than what happens in the state of Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, Oregon. So, you know, as you've already, we've already started seeing. We've seen some schools um, already saying that they're going to they're canceling their fall sports. You know, some of the you haven't seen as many at the D1 level yet, but I think it's coming. Um, if it's if it's not already going to be here, um, here in the next, it's going to be coming in, in in July into August as people make more decisions. If if we can't do what we need to do as an overall country, state to state, uh, it starts state to state, but it's really the overall country. We got to we got to we got to all work together on this to, to get what we all want back. Which is sports. I want to go back to some simpler times. You mentioned going to Alabama. How did you get your start in this business? You know, I, I started uh, as a sophomore in college. I um, Back in my hometown, I wrote for my senior year of high school, part of my senior year of high school, and in the summer leading into, I wrote for the uh, one of our papers. We have two now, but one, the Atmore Advance, I was a sports writer for it. And um, so, and I went back through my freshman year, went back home for holidays and worked there the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Well, my journalism advisor, Marie Parsons, got a call from the athletic department during that summer and they were looking for students to work in the athletic communications office at Alabama. Um, she, gave, she gave them my name and actually another guy's name who was a year ahead of me. He ended up being the sports editor of the, of the student paper um, his senior year, my junior year. Um, and I got a call and they invited me up for an interview and I drove up to campus and did an interview that summer and they offered me the job um, to come in as a student. So kind of like a, it wasn't a work study job, it was a job actually with the athletic department, but it was kind of in that work study, you know, 20 hours a week, so to speak. Um, and, and Pete, that was the fall of 1992. And if you know anything about college football, in the fall of 1992, that was the uh, first year of the SEC football championship game. That was the year Alabama went undefeated in the regular season, played Florida in that SEC championship game, won that game, played in the national championship in, in New Orleans in the Sugar Bowl against Miami for the national championship. So I tell people this story all the time, and it seems very corny. 
But I can tell you the exact moment that I realized I want to work in sports, not knowing everything of what that meant. And that was January 1st, 1993. That was that game. I remember being on the field for the last eight minutes of that game at the Superdome. And I remember looking up, you know, that, that iconic imagery with, with Bear Bryant being on the shoulders. I mean, I'm sorry, Gene Stallings being on the shoulders. Um, and right in the background, I'm kind of for a millisecond, you can see my little bit of my head and I'm looking up at the jumbotron and I'm seeing a, a picture of myself and I'm like, all right, I don't know what this is, this whole working in this college sports thing is. This is kind of cool. So from there, I just kind of went and I, I ended up working three years of my uh, undergraduate time in Alabama, you know, got up to my senior year. They, they, we restarted uh, women's soccer as a varsity sport. So I was the, my senior year in the 94-95 um, academic year, I was the women's soccer um, communications contact. And uh, I didn't know much about soccer, but the summer of, of 94 was the, was the uh, World Cup. So I did a lot of watching of soccer and I asked our coach a lot of questions and I learned the sport and got to know it and appreciate it and still watch it to this day and still a big fan. And um, from that opportunity, as I uh, went into graduation, I remember working on the 95 regional in Birmingham. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just there as a student, you know, taking quotes, passing out stuff, whatever they asked me to do. And I realized that the SEC had an internship program there at the time, and I was all about it. And I started started kind of kind of talking to a guy who uh, who was the intern at the time, Kevin Trainer, who's at Arkansas. Uh, he was uh, he had went to school at Arkansas. He was interning, and he was uh, leaving his internship. And you know, we hosted uh, I think it was the tennis or outdoor track championship, one of those. And I was just on him about trying to get that opportunity. To, to, to uh, learn about it, and I got a chance to interview, and, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I got the internship, and um, by the grace of God, somebody left, uh, left running a full-time position nine months into my internship, and Commissioner Kramer called me into the office the Monday after Selection Sunday um, and offered me a full-time job on the spot. I want to now fast forward to the present day. You have just taken a new role with the Goodyear Cotton Bowl. What is it that you're going to be doing with that game? Pete, the, the world is, is really funny. And, uh, you know, you're, I was just talking a little bit about my, my time at the SEC. And it was my time at the SEC, what turned out to be my last year. That was not my plan. But that's when I got an opportunity um, to go work the Cotton Bowl um, because the Cotton Bowl had a relationship with the SEC and the Big 12 at that time. And I really wanted to um, get an opportunity to be around a bowl game. And and uh, I talked to my uh, boss at the time, Charles Bloom, and the commissioner, uh, Roy Kramer at the time. They both allowed me that opportunity to go. Um, and I've been uh, fortunate enough to, to work 21 games as a volunteer. And, and now I have the opportunity to to go on board with the staff in the director of communications role, replacing a legend in Charlie Fish, who has worked 36 games. Um, he's a legend in the business. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a, he's a great friend, someone I got to know early in my business. And um, he, uh, you know, over time, you know, I, I, 
never knew this opportunity would even happen or was even angling for it. But just as time kind of went on and conversations started to happen, you know, it, it, it became apparent that he was getting toward the end of his time that he wanted to kind of move. Charlie's moved into a, a historian role, so he's still going to be around the game, still going to be providing a lot of great knowledge and insight and expertise. So that's going to be uh, huge for me. Um, you know, to have somebody around like that that I can rely on. But, uh, you know, to, to replace somebody that you respect and you, you admire for what they've done, it's a, it's a unique opportunity, and uh, I, I'm excited about it. And really just wanting to take that brand that is the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic and continue to showcase it in positive light, you know, across um, every – uh, aspect that we can, whether that's in college sports, whether that's in the community. Um, I want to make sure that we are talking about because there's so many positives. You know, people think about bowl games and they just think about the game. But when you're an entity like that and you've been around for, you know, the Cotton Bowl's in its ninth dec decade of existence. So, you know, you there's so many things that have happened. It's touched so many different people. And there's so many people in that Dallas, Fort Worth, North Texas, state of Texas community that have done a lot to help the game grow. And I think people need to know more about who those people are. And then obviously there's so many stories about what's happened on the field with the games, legendary games, legendary figures, legendary moments. Um, so we can always celebrate those and bring a lot of those people back and celebrate them with our Hall of Fame. Um, but it, it's just it's just a unique opportunity to walk into a job and having a 21 year relationship with it is a is a unique experience and I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's almost hard at times to put it all in words because I'm so excited. And you talk about the history that the game has, but now it's also part of the absolute elite, being part of the college football playoff and also being in one of the top stadiums, if not the top stadium in the United States, an AT&T stadium. What does that mixture make in terms of a unique story for this game? Well, I was fortunate enough during my time uh, volunteering with the game that I was there for the transition. You know, I worked several Cotton Bowls at Cotton Bowl Stadium and then worked the, the first games that were at AT&T Stadium. Um, you know, I was there for the first national championship game um, that was there under the college football playoff um, in addition to the game. Uh, the Cotton Bowl game as well. Um, it was, uh, it, it just took the whole game experience and the whole feel of the game up to another level. It was already, in my eyes, it was already, you know, among some of the elite bowl games that were out there. But this, you know, as the, as the college football picture and administration of it evolved from the BCS to the college football playoff, and they went, you know, from the from the four to the six, and then now they call it the New Year's Six, and the, the peach and the and the cotton joined that that group. It changed the whole dynamic of the of the game from the media operations side. You know, there was a lot of things that was in place, and things stayed at that that high level of baseline. But it changed because it ratcheted it up because you had to make sure that everything that we were doing was you know, you had more media coming, you had more attention, you know, now with the, with the way things work under the college football playoff in the New Year's Six, you had different matchups now coming to the bowl game. 
you know, you got teams like Wisconsin and Michigan State coming down uh, over the last few years, and also teams like Western Michigan and Memphis, you know, teams from the from the group of five. So you got a lot of different experiences for teams. You know, a lot of the SEC teams and Big 12 teams got used to it because of that relationship that they had before. But it's exciting now because you got teams coming there. Penn State this past year with Memphis, they were there for the first time. So, you know, you're, you're able to show them that enthusiasm for the game because you have enthusiasm for the game and experience. And then they're so excited because they're there. And, you know, you kind of marry that together into a great experience. And, and the one thing I would say that has been the most um, interesting to me is that that entire community in the North Texas area, you know, there's a, there's a ton of different cities there from Dallas to Fort Worth to Arlington, you know, name Las Colinas, Irving, all these different cities have come together. You know, all those are different cities that have different things going on in their own right, but they have come together as a collection to make sure that this Cotton Bowl classic experience is something. So when you come into North Texas, you experience all of that, but it's a it's an integrated um, experience and it's not something that it feels like that you're over here and this is separate from that. It's all together. I'd be remiss given your vast experience from working for universities to working for conferences to working for the NCAA to not ask you for your own opinion on what you think the impact of the name, image, and likeness will be on college athletics. Oh, it's going to be transformative. What is that going to be? I don't know because I say it's going to be transformed, but I think everybody knows that that's not a, that's not a, that's not a hidden statement or that's not, I'm not using anything um, off the wall on that point, but I think it's going to be transformative because, you know, you're going to have some situations where, you know, I think a lot of people that are, that are looking at this from the outside, looking in, they're thinking about the football and the basketball players that are going to, and mostly men's basketball players that, that, how that's going to affect and what it's going to do. But you're going to have some really ingenious um, student athletes in a number of sports where they're going to be able to maximize on these opportunities. And they're going to be very creative with what they're going to figure out based upon the parameters when it's finally finalized what those parameters are. And it's going to test everything about what we do. How, how is it administered? How is it monitored? You know, what kind of penalties are there? You know, what are the gray areas? Because they're going to be gray areas because everything is not going to be figured out. They're going to be loopholes because not everything is going to be figured out. So just by once this gets enacted and it's across the board and it's at all levels, because, you know, yes, people think about this in a division one level, but, you know, NIL is going to pass for division two and division three. That's going to create another different set of circumstances for those levels. It's definitely going to be different, but it's going to have some of the same challenges. And I think it's going to be very important. You know, I don't know the answer to, to how transformative it's going to be, but it's going to change the makeup of how college athletics works. Um, and our, profet our the, the profession of college athletics is going to have to evolve with it. And I think that's going to, that's going to take the form of staffing. That's going to take the form of education for student athletes. Um, and, and staffing may, may come in the form of a full-time staff or even potentially bringing in groups to help them manage their brand. Brand management is going to become a big thing. Or the athletic departments are going and or the athletic departments are going to be working with this student athlete is going to have their own brand manager who's going to be telling him or her how to manage their brand and how does that interact 
with the athletic department, whether that's at the administration level or at the coaching level. And obviously it's going to get a little dicey when coaches are dealing with stuff like that with administrators and with people who are on the outside. For a long time in your career, you've been involved with an organization called COSIDA. What is that organization and what have you gotten out of it personally, but also how do you use it as a vehicle to help others in the industry? You know, COSIDA, you know, in college athletics, um, all the different aspects, um, disciplines in, in, in college athletics has uh, their, their national trade organization, whether you're in the, the marketing, whether you're in development, whether you're in licensing, there's all different groups. And COSIDA is the one for strategic communicators in, in college athletics. Um, I have been active in the organization ever since my first year in. I, I think I realized the other day, um, I think I've been on a committee for 24 of the 25 years that I've, but that I've been a part of the organization. You know, I, I, I felt very strongly about being active. You know, as someone who is, uh, who's an African-American in this business, um, I've felt, always felt that it's been important to um, be in a position where maybe I can show people that people like me can be doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, in my roles now, I'm on two different committees now. Uh, well, three um, with, uh, with, with the diversity and inclusion committee that we have with COSIDA, our special awards committee in which we um, decide all, all of our major awards and also with the BC SIDA, well, with the leadership council group that we have, that's a smaller group that's managing that, that group, which is kind of a subgroup of the larger uh, COSIDA. And, you know, for, for what I've used it for, or what it's used me for, but what it's given to me really has been a place of networking, a place of learning, a place of getting go. I mean, some of my best friends in life, I met in this business through going through the convention. And now we talk all the time. We text all the time. We go on vacations together. We work games together. We do projects together whenever we, you know, we rely on each other for, you know, expertise or bouncing off ideas, um, you know, in good times and in bad. And I think that's, in, that's important. So, you know, to me, it's a, it's just been a great group, a great community um, of, of professionals and, and colleagues and friends where we can go to when we, you know, with all the things you're doing throughout the year, whether it's panels and, 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 and lunch and learns and, 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 and those types of things that you do, um, you know, through, uh, obviously now <laughs> we're all very familiar with all the different ways we can communicate virtually, not that we wasn't before, but now, but what we're using with now, I mean, that's been obviously massive. I mean, COSIDA has just, just finished off here just a little bit ago, a whole month. They turned their convention this year into a virtual convention. Instead of it being a few days, it was the entire month uh, of June, uh, and which was great because I got to go listen in to more sessions than I probably would if I was there in person. Um, and I think it's a great way to learn. I think it's a great way to get connected to people. I think it's also good to connect with the people who are your contemporaries, because if you're going to stay in this business a long time, those are the people that you're going to float up in the business in, and you're going to run into each other a lot, whether it's, uh, whether it's going after jobs, hiring people, because you're going to hopefully you move up the ladder and you're going to be hiring some of the same type of people in positions below you. So you can share information about, hey, I know something about this person or I know something about that person can help um, going through similar crises that you may have, um, sharing that information, sharing documents, 
Um, and just having a, a good friend who knows the perspective that you're looking from. And when you're having that bad day or you're having a good day, you can call him or her up and you can get on the phone. You can laugh. You can cry. You can joke about something that's going on and um, help you get through or help celebrate something that's been uh, that's been positive that's happened to you or happened to them. Are there any other organizations that you've been participating in that you find particularly valuable? You know, I, you know, as a part, as I mentioned, uh, as a part of um, um, COSIDA being a, a, an affiliate member of NACTA, which NACTA is the acronym for the larger um, uh, athletic director association that really covers that kind of trade association, entire athletics. I've been really um, a, a member of that as well. And through that, you know, I've been um, somewhat active in uh, MOA as well, which is the Minorities Opportunities uh, Athletic Association, which is another group geared toward minorities in the business. You know, one of the one of the groups I've been I've I've been involved with um, as a as a I did a one panel over time, but mostly as an attendee is a is a great um, professional development opportunity that happens normally in the September October timeframe called CALS, which is Collegiate Athletic Leadership Symposium. Um, that is out there. And they've done some, uh, even during this uh, pandemic time, they've done some CALS conversations, some virtual opportunities where they've had some, some, some leaders in college athletics um, talk about various aspects of what's going on now. That's been a, it's a smaller version of, a, of, a, of, of the NACTA convention, I would say, because it's more like a 150, 175 people in college athletics and it's, it's somewhat invitation only. Um, and it's been, a, it's been, I've been to maybe four or five of those over time. And that's been really good because you, you meet people in a little bit more intimate setting. Um, you get to know them. There's, they created some opportunities where you get to meet some athletic directors, um, people who are, you know, maybe sitting in that deputy role who are, you know, just one step away from being an AD. And you create some relationships with them because you never know what's going to happen because when they become an AD, you know, they're in, you have a role that they may be looking to fill and you created that relationship with them. You know, it could be a great opportunity for them to give you a call and say, hey, I'd love to have you come and be a part of our senior management team. So, you know, I, I like to network. I know some people use that word and they think of it in a negative connotation. I've always used it in a positive connotation because I don't just connect with people to just connect with people. I connect with them because I want to get to know who they are, get to know what they're doing. And, you know, not that I'm necessarily want them to do something for me or I'm going to do something for them, but we're in this business together. So maybe we can, we can help each other out as far as just being supporters and just being positive um, as people um, in the business. And the more positivity that we have, the better work all of us is, are going to be able to do for the student athletes and coaches and administrators. Along those lines, what would be some of the tips and advice you would give to someone who is today that sophomore at Alabama just starting to get into the industry? You know, I would say work within the circles that you're in. You know, a lot of times people say, well, I'm a, I'm a sophomore in college and I want to be an athletic director. Well, there's two things. It's not going to happen when you graduate, number one. And number two, there's really no one direct path that you have to go to get there. A lot of people have gotten there in a lot of different ways. So I would say start with the people right there around you. Talk to the people in the athletic department. If you're if you're a if you're a sports management uh, in the sports management program as an undergrad or graduate at, at a school, and you're not working in the athletic department, whether it's a volunteer or whether it's a, a GA ship or, or, or work study, whatever 
um, circumstance it might be, you're missing out on a great opportunity because it's right there. You don't have to do and and in many cases, the, the school, the athletic department will welcome the work, welcome the, the, the enthusiasm of coming on board, whether that's just helping out on game days and or helping out in the office during, during the, the regular office time. I think those are important. Um, and I would say connect with those people. Don't, you know, connect with them. Say, hey, I get reached out to a fair amount on like LinkedIn and, and young folks in the business. And, you know, say, hey, I'd love to have a 15-minute conversation about you and what you're doing and some tips and some things I can do. And then what I tell what I tell all, all the young folks, because I felt like I had to do this when I'm young, and I know you, you had to do it as well, is that once you connect with me, make it your job to keep up with me to let me know what you're doing. Because as you start evolving, you graduate, you go to graduate school, um, you get a, you get a, GA position, you get an entry level position. I'd love to know. I, you know, I know a lot of people, and I want to keep up. But when you ping me and say, "Hey, I'm just letting you know I got this job, or I'm going to this place," that's going to spark me in a lot of places. A lot of times, I'm gonna be like, "Hey, you're going down to Florida. Hey, my man Pete's a great guy for you to connect with. You should probably meet him uh, for a coffee and sit down and talk to him about what's going on." And that connection could very well lead you to your next job. That connection could lead you to a lot of different things that are positive in your life. And I think those are the things that I would tell you young folks right now, start in the circles that are around you, the school that you're at, schools that are around you, conferences, offices that are around you, any other sports ent entities, um, sports foundations that might be around you, associations that, that handles large events, start with those. And then use, use social media, you know, ping people, you know, send them that direct message on LinkedIn, on Twitter, um, I think that's important to, to do that and, and, and connect with folks because, you know, I don't think there's too many people that would say no to, to an aspiring young person who wants to get into business and, and, and take time to, to get on a phone call or get on a Zoom like, like, like this and, and, uh, and have a, a get to know you conversation. I close every episode of Credentials Only with the set pieces and very curious to hear your responses to these questions, Scotty. I start with what are podcasts or newsletters that you're using to really stay informed and to keep learning? You know, you know, there's a, a couple of things, you know, that, that comes out in the college athletic space that kind of keeps, keeps me informed, whether it's uh, the D1 ticker um, and the NACTA daily review are those kind of daily news sources that come out um, that you get them in the email. D1 ticker does morning um, and then they do an evening version, and then Knack um, uh, the Daily Review does an e uh, evening version as well. And sometimes they'll do some specialty things like that. But those two in particular are ones that I that I get um, that kind of keep me informed, especially in the college athletic space. I, you know, sometimes I get singular focused in in that, so that's where I want to get most of my sports news because that's that's keeping me informed of what's going on there. But and there's other ones out there, Athletic Director U is another one that's that's out there as well um, that I think is uh, is another great one that you can that, that gives some really good information um, you know because a lot of them there there's news articles there's podcasts that's a part of it as well so it's a it's a mixed bag of information and I think that's uh, that's a great way I, I found to kind of stay in touch especially when it's delivered to you because um, you know, something like a D1 ticker. And I know a lot of people get it because it comes in your inbox around 6.30, 6, 6.30 in the morning. Well, 
if you do it right and you don't plan anything when you first get in the office, whether it's while you're having your coffee at home or you're first sitting down at work before that first meeting, you can take that scan, that 15 minute scan and kind of see what happened maybe the night before or what's been out there and some stories and things like that. And whether you get to read them or you get to say, hey, I got to come back to that and read this in more depth in, in depth when I have a chance. On social media, who are your most valuable follows? The posts you want to make sure you see? You know, I, I, I mentioned Athletic Director U because they do a lot of their great posts, and I, I like that. You know, somebody I follow uh, who, who's a friend, and I, I, I get most of his information from um, LinkedIn, but Dr. Mark Williams, who's a, who's a marketing pioneer, um, he's been doing so much now with esports. Um, he's done some, he was doing some stuff here in Louisiana at LSU Units. He's now going to be doing some stuff with Florida uh, Memorial. He's been a visiting professor. So Dr. Mark is M-A-R-C Williams. He's one of the top 1% viewed LinkedIn profiles on all of LinkedIn. So he is, you know, he, he had a career previously where he worked in, uh, in marketing in around the, the music business and the, and the sneaker business. And now he's doing it in more of the professor uh, consultant role. Um, just a great guy. He's doing Dr. Mark's masterclass where he's doing a lot of interviews with a, a lot of great people, um, just across sports. He's got, he's had presidents, you know, so go check him out. He's uh, Dr. Mark's masterclass. And uh, he's been doing through the month of June, some great um, interviews. And then he'll come, he'll obviously post as well, some, some miscellaneous um, videos and just comments and um, information. And uh, he's a, he's a friend. I got to hang out with him not too long ago. Uh, here in New Orleans, and um, excited for him to uh, to uh, to see what he's doing with everything that he's doing because he's a uh, he's a guy that's just everywhere. And I'll make sure to post the link to that on the show notes on credentialsonly.com so people can find it pretty easily. Absolutely. What are a couple books you would recommend? You know, I actually pulled them down so that I wouldn't forget them, but uh, um, so that I have them in front of me. One of them is called Halftime uh, by Bob Buford. And it talked, and it's a great book um, for me. I read it a couple of years. I probably had this book at least five years. So, uh, and it's good because for me, I'm in my uh, latter part of my 40s. So uh, I am definitely past uh, halftime and I'm definitely in my second half. And this book talked about how, you know, trying to build yourself with success in that second half, you know, um, you know, the, the, it talked a lot, of, it talked a little bit about in the first half of your life, you're looking for success. Of in your career and in your second half in a lot of ways you're looking for significance so I want to be able to you know continue to have great success in what I'm doing but I also want to make sure that I continue to be significant in the things that I help what I do as a person um, I do as a professional and I do in the communities that I live because I think that's important and then the other one is uh, is Jack and Susie Welch uh, real life MBA um, I don't have an MBA. So as a, you know, I went to just graduate. I did not go, I just went to undergrad and have a bachelor's degree. Um, my career um, kind of took off. So I never really got into going back. And I know there's so many different options now, who knows? I may still, I may still pull it off before it's all over. But uh, you know, so I've tried to find some ways and things to get, I felt like I, I have a real life MBA in the world of, uh, intercollegiate athletics because the experiences I've had and the places that I've gone and the things I've been able to be involved with. So that book is a good reminder to me that, you know, sometimes your credentials that you have, you know, I encourage people, if you feel like you want to have 
go get that advanced degree. And whether that's a master's or a doctorate, go after it. And I would tell anybody in undergrad, if you're thinking about go get it before you really get yourself engrossed into the workforce. It's going to be a lot easier to do it then before you really go out and start doing it. There's a lot of great opportunities out there now that wasn't even there, I think, in the earlier parts of my career with the online opportunities. But um, I think if you're going to do that, do that then. But if you don't, you can still educate yourself by all these podcasts, by some of these entities that you can find information over social media, reading books, uh, and, and, and putting yourself out there in these networking opportunities. I think you can really get that real life MBA. And I think that's going to be really important as you grow in, in the profession, in whatever profession, but especially in, in the sports realm. What are you streaming in terms of TV? You know, I, I, you know, I do have Netflix, like, like a lot of people do. Um, I, I'm thinking about in, in future looking at uh, some opportunities because it seems like the, the world has changed and the opportunities are a lot different. I don't want to say any names right now because I'm, I'm in a reevaluation process. But, you know, obviously Netflix is, 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 is a place where a lot of people go. Um, before I had a, uh, you know, you know, whether you use it through your smart TV or through your Roku device. Uh, but I can tell you right now, the pulling of the, uh, pulling of the plug of, of becoming a cordless world. Um, you know, I'm a little nervous because of the sports side of it a little bit, but there's so many different opportunities out there now. And I, I got to I got to invest them. I've been a little bit more traditional. Um, so maybe I might, maybe I might step into the cordless world here in my next iteration. What is your favorite sports memory as a kid? You know, I thought about this one because you, you gave me this one beforehand. And it wasn't as a kid because it's hard to really, it was, it was actually my senior year of college because um, the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. I graduated college. And then the Braves won the World Series all in the same year. Like that's, you know, outside of Alabama winning the national championship, that was so that was the greatest sports year in my uh, life. And, um, you know, but I will tell you, I, I distinctly remember the, the day uh, the Braves went from worst to first um, um, on the slide um, on that play and just going bananas um, on that. And that was, you know, that was 91. Um, so, you know, I remember some things like that, but, that, you know, it wasn't as a kid, but, pretty hard when two of your three favorite teams win it all in the same year that you graduate college. So it was, it was pretty, pretty special year. I'd like two of my three teams to win in my lifetime, let alone <laughs> in one year. <laughs> uh, I got to ask which, which pitcher was your favorite from those Braves teams? You know, I was Smoltz. Okay. You know, and it was, it was, I mean, I mean, look at that lineup was just, oh. it was murderous row. You know, you, you didn't want to face any of them. But I just, I, I was, I just liked Smoltz. I just, the way his demeanor, just the way he, he went after it. And he wasn't a power pitcher by any stretch of the imagination, but man, he could, he could make that ball dance and he could make it do what it needed to. And, you know, just some, some great teams and having suffered through the eighties and the latter part of the seventies with a, not a very great Braves uh, franchise for them to do what they did starting in the 90s and not culminating in 95, but definitely being the, 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 the time that they, they got it all done. It was, uh, I still shake my head, so. 
I, I'm not a Braves fan, but I some of the worst weather I've ever experienced at baseball games was if Maddox was in town. And I remember a game, it, both in Cincinnati, one game where I think Jeff Blauser's cleats actually melted because the turf got so hot at Riverfront Stadium. It was yep. disgustingly hot. And then there was one where it was like 37 and raining and both times got the best seats I could. Cause I just wanted to watch Maddox and that those teams were certainly special. I Last question. Don't have a Greg Maddox Jersey that I, I still pull out on, on, on occasion, a little old school. Opening day. And you know, the important days, the important days. Last question for you. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I do keep my credentials. I have them all in a, a old chest in my uh, in the right now it's in the, in my garage. But uh, I, I do have plans to do something with them. I don't know when and where, but uh, I do keep them. I don't keep every single one of them. I keep the more important ones because I do want to be able to look back. Um, and I do from time to time. I'll go open up the, this chest and they're just sitting in there, and I'll pull them out and I'll. I'll pull one out and it will just remind me of the game or who I was working the game with or something that happened or something funny that happened, you know, because you know this, Pete. When we're working these games and we're behind the scenes, there's so many stories that happen that we don't tell people, you know, because we're behind the scenes. We're in the bowels of these arenas and stadiums. And the stuff that we're talking about or dealing with while the game is going on, People truly don't understand. Many times we're not even watching the actual athletic event. Rarely are we watching the actual athletic event to see what's actually happening. Yeah, we know the time um, or where it is so that we know what's happening next. But for the most part, we're enthralled in something else, especially, unfortunately, when something goes wrong. Um, we're enthralled in that. and, and uh, But just the stories that's sitting in you know, those media rooms, and, you know, converted storage rooms, you know, sitting back there and you're laughing and you're telling stories and, you know, you, you, you turn it into fun because when you're there the 14, 16 hours a day, you got to make it fun. So, and that's what we do. And I, that, those stories are the ones that make me smile. The games and some of the great moments in the games absolutely do, but those do as well. Scotty, I appreciate the time. It's great to hear your perspectives from all the various angles that you've had in this, and I wish you the best of luck with the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic as well. Thanks, Pete. You've been a great friend. Look forward to staying in touch. Absolutely. Great talking to you. There was so much good advice and insight from Scotty in this episode. I want to thank him for his time in having this conversation with me, and I want to thank you for listening. As we mentioned, show notes can be found on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, submit your email address and we'll send you a message when we have a new episode. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to Mike Miche for editing this and every episode of Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.